again, the Greg Cruz Film Club commences here from Hollywood's most salubrious and glamorous of all, oh my goodness, and feedbackiest of all exciting rock venues uh, right here on Fairfax Avenue in the burgeoning baseball cap kosher food district. It's the Greg Cruz Film Club live from the Cine family. Where cinema is hailed, cinema is regaled, and cinema is generally venerated. Uh, tonight, we'll be showing the John Huston picture from 1975, which I think in some ways is a latter-day beloved classic of adventure from the genre of The Man Who Would Be King with Sean Connery and Michael Caine, Christopher Plummer and Taej Joffrey. Where to begin on this picture? I saw it in the drive-in uh, with Leon de Rossi and... Uh, we went to the Redwood Theater, and we had, you know, a bag of lumbo or whatever, because it was... Uh, you have to put this in context. This movie came out in 1975, and it was not a hit when it came out. Like, people have heard about it now, kind of, because Michael Caine and Sean Connery are two of the most enduring, lovable, and sexy stars. And by the way, two things about this movie, I think, uh, that are just weird. One... All four of five people that are like major leads in this are alive today. And this picture was made, you know, 1975. Uh, I know. <laughs> no, but Michael Caine, Sean Connery, Saeed Joffrey, and Christopher Plummer, and Shakir Kane are all uh, around, which is awesome. And two, um, all of them say in different forms that they were told to change how they acted, that Sean Connery said he was either too tall or too short or too Irish or too Scottish, and Michael Caine said no one had ever talked like that before and looked like that and wore big glasses and stuff. And uh, I think it's a lesson uh, to not be homogenized. That the, and when you watch this movie, this is what propels it along. The distinctiveness of uh, each of their personalities and the fact that I think Sean Connery might be the most irresistible sexual tiger rug that ever strode the fucking screen. <laughs> In the history of mankind, he has the cruelty that women like and the savoir-faire that men uh, debate about into the long hours. And despite him going bald at 21 and wearing an apparent rug that in some movies is super awesome, like Red October, where he's got kind of a Rip Taylor modified punk rug. Like it's silver, but it's punky on the sides. It's, uh, it's almost white wedding, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's getting toward white wedding and... Uh, uh, and then, then there's uh, movies where he goes totally bald. We were just telling my wife, Jennifer, and I were talking about. Uh, and by the way, thank you. Hadrian uh, gave us an intro. Hadrian is a, a derelict who lives in this building. And uh, he said that he was especially proud, and I use the word especially with special uh, expressions, that he was especially proud to present the Greg Proops Film Club here and his fine Adobe. Uh, when uh, I was showing a good picture like this Well, Jennifer picks almost all the pictures in this film club And uh, I didn't, uh, she didn't pick this one This was mine I said, Summertime, I want to show this one It's the longest movie we've ever shown It's um, seven hours and 55 minutes uh, It was made originally by an Indian director And then cut back by John Huston uh, It was originally called The Men Who Would Be King Ita And uh, that is so weak I can't believe a kitten didn't just die At the fucking lack of oxygen in the room On the end of that fucking burned out taper in any case uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite a good movie and it peps right along um, uh, uh, Sean Connery um, hang on you think I'm just being useless and drinking but that's a noise you're going to hear a lot in this movie I'm going to do it again so you can recognize it
because they're in Eastern temples quite a lot in this movie. Yeah, Eastern temples. That means romance, intrigue, and adventure. Heavy on the no romance, mostly intrigue and adventure. This is a movie where men love men, like Point Break, where men get together like men and they make a bond. They actually get married at the beginning of the movie in a symbolic ceremony. Oh, yes, they do. Then later, as the relationship matures, uh, because they've forsworn the opposite sex, you see, in order to achieve their ultimate goal. I'm not going to give anything away. Let me just put it this way. Sean Connery's got a hairy chest, no hair on his head, and has never been bitchin'er. He has silver mutton chopped sideburns that say, come on and get it. Uh, I eat soup and I drink beer, so fuck you about, yeah, yeah. As my wife pointed out, they don't look like young raw recruits in the army. Uh, they look like two dudes who've been around for a while, uh, which is, I think, why this works. Now, we've heard a lot about John Houston, uh, how he was going to originally cast, I was going to have... Uh, bogey and uh, Clark Gable. Clark Gable? Why Clark Gable? Um, and I don't think it would have, I mean, it might have worked. It, you know, it, to me, that's one of those fun ones. It's like when everybody says, uh, Casablanca was originally going to be Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan. <laughs> no, no, what? You know what? It fucking wasn't ever. <laughs> It would have sucked balls. No one would have made it. It wouldn't have got green-lighted, okay? That's like saying Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Brad Smith and Angelina Jolie was originally supposed to be Juliette Lewis and fucking uh, anyone. So, and I don't mean that as a diss to Juliette Lewis. I like Juliette Lewis. I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying. No. And I don't... And then Paul Newman and Robert Redford, evidently, the property. And then Paul Newman recommended Michael Caine and Sean Connery. How about fucking that is awesome. Because this is Butch Cassidy in the Hindu Kush with martini rifles. And this is Thelma and Louise with donkeys, mules. Um, it's, a, it, it's, the, it's that kind of high adventure and it's that kind of male bonding. And they don't need women because they provide their own. When men kill and when men feel shitty about how they've treated each other, that's like male sex on film. <laughs> And this movie provides two burly, fucking robust dudes who've been around quite some time uh, providing that male sucks for you. And everybody's doing their own special voice through the whole movie, uh, which proves never give up on the uh, voice that they gave you. Uh, improve that shtick. Uh, if, uh, I can imagine someone saying to Sean Connery, you should really drop that. And <laughs> because that's how show business works, you know. You'll never make it without hair, kid. Um, in any case, uh, this is Sean Connery's favorite movie. I mean, uh, Michael Caine's favorite movie, so he says. I wanted to read it. wasn't a big hit on the year. I saw it in the drive-in with my friend Leon Rossi. We got high, and we loved it. We cried at the end. We were like 16. We were embarrassed in the car together, right? In those days, you had the big speaker that hung on the window that could totally break the window because it weighed so much, and the thing was so precarious. If anyone remembers, one guy remembers this. One guy, one guy burst out in what can only be described as a guffaw. And he went, pah, pah. Because uh, it's true. The, the, the speakers that you put in your car at the drive-in theater were attached by a giant black cord that was sometimes quite frayed uh, that was attached to a post that came out of the ground on a hillock next to your vehicle. You parked on a hillock, and there was a small hillock next to you with a thing, and you reached out, and, and then you reached out and got it, and you put it on your window, and then you... Very slowly, because if you slammed it down, you'd break the goddamn window. And it only had one control, a rusty dial that had never worked. And so you'd twist it, and it would go... 
That was what the previews were like. They, they skipped around a lot. They showed from the time I started high school till the time I graduated, four, seven and a half years later, they showed the same... Uh, uh, during the interval, at the uh, during the inter- the interval, I'm from I'm originally I'm originally from Wales. <laughs> during the intermission, uh, they they would show, uh, you know, that let's let's all go to the lobby and all that, you know, and and we and everybody fuck off to the lobby and, um, but uh, they would also show it's only rock and roll. Someone had made a film of the Stones, it's only rock and roll, like a little two minute promo thing where like they'd go the Rolling Stones and it would go. No, and then like a bird would fly at the screen and shit, and then wow, and it was like Rolling Stones, and it was a little hit of rock. And we all—I remember digging it every time. Four years, five years, the album had come out and gone way. I mean, we were into some girls by the time they stopped showing this fucking thing. You know, we might have been into Emotional Rescue. It showed that long at the, but I always felt like they thought, "Fuck it, I love this." Like whoever was the projector, you know, he's been there for like. I'm picturing a dude smoking a fucking, you know, like a water pipe filled with 151 rum in the shape of a turtle, and he's got, you know, like right, like Cheech and Chong hair, and yeah, you know, a headband, and like he's man, I gotta change the reels on Mecha Godzilla. So they, I'm going to play the Rolling Stones thing because the, the other ones were, this is the snack bar. There's a wholesome array of healthy treats. It was from the 50s. And then there was a kid with a fucking weenie that just looked like such a fucking, you know, whatever. And he would go like, Arr! and of course me and my friend Skip would be pounding on each other at this point. We went to see Birds Do It, Bees Do It in the 70s. This is the kind of fare that played in the 70s. If it, first of all, there was regular fare, you know, like Taxi Driver or, or uh, uh, you know, something highfalutin, Godfather 2, whatnot. Uh, uh, right, you know, because there were, everybody was making pictures then. All the old people were still alive. All the, you know, even Hawks and Hitchcock and Houston, everybody was still making pictures. And then at the same time, it was Brian De Palma, so there'd be like, you know, a body double or something. And yeah, it's just like that you'd be like, really? Uh, oh. In any case, uh, they would show, uh, we, they were showing Birds Do It, Bees Do It, which had, uh, it was animals copulating. Like, and it was every type of animal, from the smallest newt to the largest of God's creatures. And I assure you that during the elephant part, there was hysteria in the drive-in, with a great deal of the flashing of lights and the honking of horns. During that sequence, as all of us there were probably 16, who'd come to, why? The, again, fuck you, young people of today. With your infinite, infinite choices for entertainment. See how we were hounded like a caiman through the fucking Orinoco down the river by fucking relentless hunters with pigeon accents and stubby cigars and horrible tattoos of foul on their faces. Hunted like that to find the only entertainment we were reduced to in suburban peninsula San Carlos where I grew up. Going to the drive-in movie theater with a bag of lumbo and a bottle of tequila. 
Or perhaps, and yes, we did do this, gin and apple juice. And I thank you. The Bible says, chapter 5, section 4. Judge not those who gin and juice, lest ye have the snoop come dogged upon thy soul in the nights laid back. I've got my mind on your soul and your soul is on the line. That's the, I'm paraphrasing a lot of it. The book of proofs is infinite in its ways and myriad in its meanings. Seek ye not to understand all at once. Seek ye only to OD on candy while watching this fine fucking popcorn movie. Two interesting things. And then we'll talk about the movie. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> and the world keeps turning. Um, wow. I saw it in 76 in the drive-in. It was not a hit. Here's what was going on that year. Um, this is maybe why at the time it was considered slightly out of touch. I'm not kidding. It was a bit, it was a bit campy for the year it came out. And then you'll know why when I read the list of films that smoked this whole year. This was an amazing year. Um, Jaws. Dog Day Afternoon, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Shampoo, Rollerball, Tommy, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Three Days of the Condor, Nashville, The Passenger, The Stepford Wives, and Monty Python on the Holy Fucking Grail. As well as, let's see what else, Cooley High for your art films, um, Hedda with Glenda Jackson, which is a superb film, Love and Death by Woody Allen. Um, there was a million movies, and this got lost in the wash, in my opinion. It's also... Not a high tide for Michael Caine. Sean Connery had bunched a bunch of goodies around this, like Murder on the Orient Express and whatnot. Michael rallied a little later than him, but uh, this is a good period for Sean because after this comes Outland and, you know, da-da-da. It's pretty groovy. Um, for uh, Houston, he'd already been a director for ages at this point. Um, I think his first acting role or whatever, his first role in show business is like 1929. Uh, in any case, you know all about John Houston. His daughter, Angelica, his, do his son, Danny, his father, Walter. He's the only person that directed both his father and his daughter to Oscar-winning roles. It doesn't mean anything, but it's awesome. <laughs> it's completely random. Who would have a father and a daughter that were both talented actors? And then you've seen John's acting. Uh, my favorite, I think, is The Lawgiver in Planet of the Apes 5, is it? <laughs> then the human and the ape would live together. It was just fed. Because I'm in Chinatown, but we've done Chinatown a lot of them because it's easier for me to do. Hmm. Why, Mr. Cross? Why? Power, Mr. Katz. Power. There's something about John Houston's open mouth that is the most horrible thing in motion pictures. He leaves it open, and there's a very orangutanical cast to what John Houston is doing, aside from his stentorian baritone and his giant hunchy tallness and white hairiness. Uh, in the movie Man in the Wilderness, is it where he chases Richard Harris in a boat that's on wheels? Is, it, am I, is that one, or am I getting it wrong with Man Called Horse? I think it's Man in the Wilderness. Not one fucking person in a theater in L.A., at a 1970s film festival. It's not a festival, Greg, it's one film. We don't have time for a festival. In LA, one film is a festival. 
We're busy. We don't have all night. How long does lunch take? 45 minutes tops. You never sit for two and a half hours like it's Tuscany and you're Diane Lane. No one's wearing espadrilles and enjoying the night air in this cocking town. Work, 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 push, push, push. God damn it. Michael Caine and Sean Connery sued Allied Artists after this movie was made for their money. Sean uh, accused them of, I believe it was phrased in one of the websites I looked at as like creative cookery or something, of the bookery. And Sean said, I sued them. And then I'm pleased to say they went under right after. Uh, Yeah. Here's the top 10 movies in gross. And it's a terrible way to rate them, but it's just a good way to get an idea. Are you blinking me? Okay, thanks. Uh, Jaws, Rocky Horror, One Flew Over, Dog Day Shampoo, Return of the Pink Panther, Funny Lady. Yeah. Um, Barbara Streisand returns with, uh, wow, someone made the funniest noise in the history of mankind. <laughs> we have a lot of noises at this show. We've had pa, and earlier we had guffaw. Uh, we've even had on the show cashew. But uh, just now we had <laughs> like Dan Durier was reading a comic book in this room. How are you enjoying the show? <laughs> I said, funny lady, and he went, <laughs> Barbara Streisand, for one thing, my friend, gave birth to you. A lot of what you see around you is because of her. Secondly, that was a joke, but okay. How do they, how do they find me? Fucking literal religious crowd. And... Uh, there's, you know, I mean, think about it. Uh, she made a lot of movies. If you were here last year for our Christmas film, which was What's Up, Doc, you might be singing a Dixie out of a different orifice of your uh, below the equator. You might think a little differently of Barbara Streisand. She was super tanned in that movie. Uh, she was really funny, and she did a lot of jokes, and there was a, she didn't sing. And uh, you might have liked it better. Now, I agree when you watch a movie like Nuts or Yantle, you're hard-pressed at some points. You're, you're paddling for land as hard as you can. <laughs> but compare her to other singing stars, like, say, for instance, Madonna, whose track record in movies is uh, uh, spotty. <laughs> that was the most generous thing I could say. Uh, although, I think if you go back and look at Shanghai Express, you'll be angry at me. I remember when um, Swept Away came out because um, my wife and I kept a death watch at one of the theaters it was showing at. I don't know why I went back to that joke. It just seemed like a good thing to do at the time. Let's get into the uh, stars here. Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, Houston uh, made, of course, other pictures. The Treasure of uh, Sierra Madre, which I suggest you see, if at all possible. We try to disseminate pictures on this show because uh, you have to understand that not everyone's as hip and savvy as the uh, people here. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who've never heard of any movie ever. And, uh, and I'm, you know what I mean by that. Like, you, thank you. Right? You, you meet someone and you go, um, don't you? Yeah. Don't you, you, don't you love uh, uh, Serpico, and they go, what's that? And you go, it has Al Pacino, and they go, his that? And then you go, Al Pacino, and they go, is it in black and white? And you go, no, it's in color. When's it, when's it fun? It's from the 70s. Oh, maybe that happened before I was born. 
I want to watch Hangover 5. Do you have any Ryan Seacrest DVDs? You know the people, I mean. So this is for them. This one goes out to you, Mr. Arm, Mr. Armchair Quarterback. This one goes out to you, Mr. Part-Time Cinematographer. Uh, uh, I don't know what I'm sending out. But when I remember, it's going to be fucking awesome. Uh, no, you can't... Mm. Does anyone remember what I was... Yes, John Houston. Um, the Treasure of Sierra Madre is imperative, uh, followed by the Maltese Falcon, which is also imperative. Um, exactly. By God, sir, if there's one thing I like, it's a woman who can go woo. <laughs> I don't trust her. Why don't you both shut up and get ready to watch the movie that I was going to be in in the 50s? Somehow the son of a bitch didn't have the knife. <laughs> Key Largo, which is awesome. Wise Blood, Fritzy's Honor, Anne, uh, which is a later, wilder, weirder affair. The Misfits with um, Marilyn Monroe and Montgomery Clift. I don't know if it's a great movie, but it's certainly compelling watching, right? I mean, every moment that Montgomery... I mean, every actor in it is throwing down as hard as they possibly can. The African Queen. Um, I don't know. I love the African Queen, but it's that one's old fashioned, isn't it? That one's got a lot of the uh, feeling of this one. It, and by the way, don't call me or email me or do anything in order to contact me. Don't tweet me after you see this movie and and go. This is the most racist, imperialist bag of old twaddle I've ever seen trotted out and flogged as entertainment in front of culpable paying fucking customers who downloaded the show for free. Uh, you have to understand this is made in the old-fashioned style and that's what supports it. Uh, that one of the pillars of it, I think, why it didn't succeed against uh, the year that fucking Rocky Horror and Doctor Afternoon came out was that America was dealing with a lot of issues and uh, this movie's not dealing with those issues. This movie's dealing with the harumph, harumph. Uh, Michael Caine said um, this about the movie. Um, do you mention uh, Carter's age uh, from the movie Get Carter? Could you say the same for The Man Who Would Be King? Absolutely. That's part of the reason it's my favorite film. It will never age. You and Mr. Connery seem born to play those roles, and that's why this movie succeeds. Mr. Connery and Mr. Kane are born to play these roles. The funny thing is when John Huston first tried to make the film, it was back in the 50s, and he wanted a bogey. Then he tried again with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. That would have been hot. And then after that, he tried to get it up and running with Newman Radford. Apparently, it was Paul Newman who suggested me and Sean, which was very nice of him. A John Houston anecdote, please. Sean Connery is not the biggest fan of heights. There was a day when we were shooting on the rope bridge, and Sean turned to John and said, Do you think the bridge looks safe? John lowered his eyes and said, Sean... The bridge looks well as it always has. The only difference is that today, I'm going to be standing in the middle of it. Uh, if The Man Who Would Be King is your favorite film, do you have a favorite performance? The Quiet American. Oh, that's a brilliant Michael Caine movie. That really is. And I think he should have got the Oscar for that. 
I don't love the movies he got the I mean I don't you know whatever I'm just saying he was quite good in that it, the, uh, we went and saw that movie when it came out or right uh, we saw him trot it out again it it came out on September 12th 2001 and yeah it wasn't it got skated over so it came out again after that but it was a toughie and that's a really good movie I knew Graham Greene says Michael Caine and I, do, I knew he didn't approve but I think he would have loved Our Quiet American and I agree uh, let's see this one's a goodie Given how many great films you made, does it disappoint you when people want to talk about the ones that didn't do so well? This is Michael Caine, who's in The Ipcris File and Hannah and Her Sister. I, I mean, where does it begin? Alfie, uh, Get Carter. Um, I know I'm stopping it before a million. No, what annoys me is when, as happened today, you're doing a day's worth of interviews, and the very first question asked is, why did you make Jaws the Revenge? <laughs> When things like that happen, the interview becomes very short indeed. Just out of interest, how did you reply? I just said what I've always said. I made it because they paid me a lot of money. <laughs> I give you the man who would be king. What a picture, huh? That was high adventure. Wow. King Hassan of Morocco. A lot of it was shot in Morocco. And it's fabulous. Hooray! Uh, does anyone remember in the Treasure of Sierra Madre when the gold falls on the ground? And it, and it blows away, and, they, and he does the same shot with all the, the gold falling down the hill. Um, how's the score of this picture? Uh, it's amazing, every moment of it. Uh, and <clears throat> from the moment he decides to marry Roxanne, the dissonance and the unease in the, in the score, it becomes so frantic. And then when the wedding happens and you see that she's like been completely drugged out and, and, and all the women are chanting behind her and the woman throws herself on the ground, it's just extraordinary, the... Uh, how magnificent uh, what they do with the soundtrack of this picture is. Um, also, Saeed Joffrey. Uh, yeah. That is movie helper, my friends. Uh, if you, <clears throat> Saeed Joffrey was in the first Indian company that took Shakespeare around England. And also, he's in all of the Merchant Ivory pictures from uh, the early days on. And as uh, a, a superb actor, years ago I saw him in London. <clears throat> Excuse me, my friend Josie Lawrence was doing uh, The King and I. And he played the, uh, the Lord High, you know, Chamberlain in it. And did the, oh, yes, by Jove thing and all that. And uh, hammed it up so hard during the king's death that all focus was pulled to him. And it was one of the best performances I've ever seen in a musical. The musical's okay, but at the end when the king was dying, he was going, <laughs> and like shaking and shit. And then when he came out to take his bow, the place went batshit. And I thought, that's good fucking musical comedy acting. So I've seen the genuine article. Um, you're, anyways, uh, let's have a couple of questions or maybe kick it around a little bit, and then we'll blow into this good night. And I thank you for coming out for this. We're going to do another film club at the end of July, and we don't know uh, what we're going to show yet. Do we have any ideas? No. No, we don't. But God damn it, it's going to be good. Uh, hopefully at King, uh, Men Who Would Be King level, quality level, or, or higher. Anybody know? Yeah. There's someone. Robbo's moving amongst you, the laying on of hands. Uh, I know a lot of afflicted people came in tonight and they feel better now. 
And uh, that's the best part of this film club. Hi, what's uh, your name? Uh, Anton. Hi, Anton. We all noticed the second unit director is Michael Moore. Not no, the Michael Moore we know and love. But God, it's, I hope it was, don't you? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but what a miserable cock he must have been in Morocco the whole time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Someone's abusing these donkeys. I don't know. Is there a story behind that? Is it someone who worked with uh, John Ford before or, or no? Do I what? Is, is there a story behind that? Is it someone who worked with uh, the director before or, or no? With Michael Moore? No, 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 Michael Moore. I mean, was he another second unit director? That oh, golly. Him? I have no idea who the second unit director is. But I do know that uh, Kalum or whatever who played the uh, great Panjandrum, the high priest, was supposedly 103 years old. And they cast him in Morocco, yeah. And then uh, Houston said, you'll live forever on film. And he, got to, he lived and he saw the film made. Uh, and also, they hadn't cast a, a Roxanne, evidently, before they started shooting. And they were having a dinner party. And, and John Houston went, I don't have a Roxanne. And everybody looked down the table at Shakira Kane. And uh, that's how she got the part. Uh, she was already married to Michael. And, uh, of course, she's a stunning supermodel in it. Um, did you notice that I don't think there's one line of dialogue spoken by a woman in this movie? Uh, <laughs> Much like one of my other favorite movies, Lawrence of Arabia. I don't know what that says about me. It's, it's, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it's like such a break from something like Steel Magnolias or Terms of Endearment. Where, or uh, The Women or, or Stage Door where it's just high peeping voices going through you all the time. Am I wrong or am I wrong? When you hear those uteruses twanging, it really sets your teeth on edge. And that's why a good movie, a real good movie... I won't have any dialogue from women, but just simply hairy chests and guys yelling a lot. And then, of course, some ultraviolence to kind of punctuate things, because men really can't give birth, but we can beat the shit out of each other with rocks. And uh, it's one of the most adaptable things about us. Uh, I'm, a, I'm instituting an open carry rock policy here on Fairfax, where I carry rocks to prove my constitutional right. I don't know if you've read the 43rd Amendment, but the 43rd Amendment guarantees me the right to carry rocks wherever I fucking want to. Uh, a well-armed rock militia is integral to this country's freedom isn't free, bitches. I mean, you wander around this fucking neighborhood, you get a canner, you do whatever, but think about it. If it wasn't for the people who threw rocks, this country would be in a state instead of awesome as it is now, where the rich and the poor share each day. We live in a dream state of awesome equality, and I think we've proven that time and time again. That's where this movie's taken me. Um... <laughs> understand that there were two maniacs that this story was based on. James Bork, who was the white Raja of Sarawak, and, uh, and, and took over a good deal of uh, a part of Sumatra, the Malaysian Peninsula. He was working in the, in the employ of the Sultan of Brunei, thought it up and did it himself, went down there and killed a bunch of pirates, and then was made a Raja. And he's a British hero, a storybook hero, and a real person from the 19th century who led an army, or a navy rather, of his own against a bunch of pirates and wiped them out. And then another insane person, an American named Josiah Harlan, who was from Sylvania, went to this very part of Asia and uh, became a Raja there as well and, tried to, and went over the Kush with a, a giant force. And, uh, oh, yeah. So there were real people who did this insane shit, and Kipling knew all about them. And uh, Lord Jim, uh, Conrad's uh, immortal tale and epically awful movie with the late great Eli Wallach and uh, Peter O'Toole. Eli Wallach, in his career, played a lot of Mexicans. And uh, very authentically, as you know, uh, one of the most uh, uh, important parts of Mexico is Brooklyn. And uh, it's a rich cultural crescent of Mexico. 
the Brooklyn part of Mexico is, is impaired. So you remember a, a, hey, blondie, hey, blondie. And then every once in a while, he'd say a Brooklyn word. It's getting hard. <laughs> so in Lord Jim, he plays a Chinese warlord. And he's wearing leather. And he has a sword, Eli Wallach. And uh, he goes, oh, we got to do something about him. And you're like, it's awesome. Uh, things are so much better now. <clears throat> You'd never see racism in, say, a Star Wars movie or a, a Michael Bay movie. You would only see what is a reflection of reality in Michael Bay's mind. <laughs> Giant robots running down the street and white guys with huge nipples fucking killing him and shit. Isn't that what the world is like? Um, th- for those of you with any body fat, fuck you in Michael Bay's world. <laughs> fuck you, you don't exist. You're comic relief or you get shot or eaten. And isn't that the way the world should be? If you wanted it to be, you know, good. Our leader would have douchey long hair and wear jeans and be the biggest twat that ever walked the face of the fucking earth. And we would follow him wherever we went. Uh, I love that it was their favorite movie. I think it's because they're buddies. You could have reteamed him a few times, quite frankly. I could have done with a little more. Like when you see Sam Jackson and uh, um, John Travolta in, in Pulp Fiction, you're like, bring them back. And then they don't. Uh, instead, they bring back, what was it, Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson in uh, Unbeatable or Break, Break Offable or whatever that was called, where nothing fucking happened for three hours and they went to a football game and you're like, really? This is a movie? Um, uh, at least Newman and Redford did it again in The Sting. So they didn't have horses, they had fucking ties and shit. I love it. Uh, you could do another one with them old now. They're, they're both, they're, they're old, but they're still alive. And Christopher Plummer. How fun is Christopher Plummer in this? Evidently, Sean Connery fought to keep him in this. Uh, they weren't going to use him, and, and Sean Connery argued it down and threatened to quit uh, until they kept uh, Christopher Plummer. It makes it uh, more fun, I think, and gives it that epic arc of, uh, by having Kipling really be in it and actually getting to see Kipling sign the piece of paper, Rudyard Kipling. And in the very beginning, when he's writing at the Northern Star, he's writing a poem that you can look up, uh, the name of which I've forgotten, but I studied it today, and it was pretty good. Um, No, it's a poem about war and all that. Now, understand that Kipling uh, was something of an imperialist until his son, who he uh, pulled strings to get into the Irish Guard in World War I, um, was grievously wounded in the face and died and was never found. Uh, In the 90s, they think they found Kipling's son. And so after that, he wasn't so hot on war anymore. Uh, But this is the part of it... uh, um, that, uh, that, that sort of reflects that imperialistic part. Houston, of course, was in a film unit in World War II and said after the war, if I ever make a movie that glorifies war, fucking kill me. And, uh, and Michael Caine served in Korea and didn't dig it at all. And of all the James Bonds, uh, Sean Connery's the only one who was actually in the Royal Navy. Uh, so uh, there you are. Uh, any, any more? And then we'll, uh, then, we'll, then we'll blow into that. Yes, Robin, we're... I can't. I can neither Hi. see nor hear the audience. Hi, what's your name? I'm, I'm John. Hi. Hi, Sean. I had always heard that there was a connection between John Huston and Sean Connery's relationship in The Wind and the Lion that led to their working together in this film. Because Huston is in The Wind and the Lion, directed by John Milius, and I think that was just a year or two before. I was going to say it, it definitely precedes it. Yeah, yeah. And it was one of Milius's babies. You're probably right. They might have met on there for all I know. Or they knew each other before, and Houston convinced him to do it. How he made two unbelievable sand and sword epics in one year. Right. And the wind, the wind in the line, if you've never seen it, he's uh, Sean Connery's an Arab in that one. I believe he's Moroccan. Uh, and, um, but he's from one of the uh, deepest, darkest parts of the Rift Mountains, Edinburgh. Um, LAUGHTER 
which, as you know, uh, the Scottish part of Morocco, treacherous. Uh, there's cobras and whatnot, snake charmers. Uh, and, and so he still talks like this. I am the Sahib. Uh, and he kidnaps uh, Candy Bergen. And uh, that movie's really fun because it has a... Uh, uh, Brian Keith is Teddy Roosevelt. And Brian Keith, I know you love Night at the Museum 1 and 2. But if you want good-ass Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Brian Keith is bringing the noise in the movie The Wind in the Line. And John Milius, as you know, is a straight-up, I don't know, kind of borderline, what would you call him? Maniac? Uh, gun-toting maniac. But he wrote, you know, a lot of good scripts. Apocalypse Now, Big Wednesday, Dillin- Dillinger, I believe, and then also The Wind in the Line. I don't know how they got connected on that, but they're two awesome movies to see... Uh, if you like Bernoose and, and Dishdosh uh, in a costume, didn't you dig, too, uh, the sets? Sikandar Ghul is fucking awesome. How there's still some Greek temples there from 2,000 years ago. And then they've dressed the rest of it with red fuzz everywhere. Uh, and also the treasure and whatnot. Uh, golly. Uh, one more, and then we'll fuck off into the, into the night. It's pretty literal to Kipling's novel, except at the end. Uh, how large would you say was the ruby that was handed to Michael Ah, Kane? wasn't that fantastic? Like the size of about a grapefruit? Uh, size of a small tangerine? A tangerine at least. Because some men want to watch the world burn. What was it? Are, are you quoting a lyric that I don't know? Oh, The Dark Knight. Oh, you're using an illiterate comic book reference. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, you're probably right. Uh, it, it is the sides of tension. I didn't get that reference. I'm sorry. Is, which Dark Knight was it? One of the awesome ones? <laughs> the one with Michael Caine. Uh, yeah, where he's Alfred. Now it's going to be Jeremy Irons in the new one because uh, they wanted to make Alfred scary and rapey. Uh, it, <laughs> they'd had enough of Michael Caine's earnest Cockney butler and they decided to have a pervy undead butler for Batman in this one. However, Batman's going to be Ben Affleck, so all fucking bets are off. Uh, Cash your entertainment chips before you get into the movie theater. I'm betting there's not enough oxy in the world to make Ben Affleck great as Batman. But I'm just, I'm, maybe I'm cynical on this. Maybe he'll surprise me and uh, smuggle some fruit the way he did. And what was the one, what was his movie that had Colin Farrell with a target on his head? The Avenger? What was it called? Oh, Christ. You know, there's movies that you see on planes and you wake up screaming and then you think you're having a nightmare and then you realize you're on a plane and it's just the jet noise. Um... Uh, and Daredevil was one of those for me. Evidently, this crowd fucking loved Daredevil because everyone's gone all quiet and shit. Evidently, Ben Affleck's cousins are in here tonight and there are dozens. No wonder I could smell Boston Red Sox douche in the crowd. <laughs> really? Fucking walk it off. This is a free and conducive atmosphere in Hollywood unlike you'll find at a meeting. So if you want to have fun, have it now. Because tomorrow when your life resumes again in show business, it won't be this fucking free and easy. You'll have to, you'll have to go, <laughs> grown-ups four? I love it! Yeah, that's what you'll have to do tomorrow, you groveling lapdogs. Don't even begin to come to my film club and pretend. One Ben Affleck reference and the whole fucking crowd goes Benedict Arnold on me and shit. Next thing you're going to say, Michael Fassbender got cheated for not getting an Oscar for 12 Years a Slave for doing crappy Bruce Dern. You know I'm right. In your fucking heart, you know I'm right. That's the thing that makes me awesome, is that I'm right, and you know it. Well, I like that movie. Mm, I know. You haven't seen that many movies. That's why you thought he was good in it. 
when I knew the key. When someone wears a, a, a do-rag in one scene and then a Colonel Sanders outfit and then another scene and then like a dashiki in another scene and goes like in scenes and shit like that, you're like, really? Um, and the crowd goes quiet. I thought it was good. It was, it was evocative. He was showing his range. He was a crazy person within a milieu that you didn't understand in a historical context, Greg, with your fucking book learning and shit. Quoting from books and poems instead of comic books. I think a summertime movie, though, for uh, July, like a late one, something fun. Well, we, we were talking about, like, a French picture or something. Or, yeah, ooh la la, someone went. I was thinking maybe the Aristocats. Or, uh, you fucking scoff. I could fill this fucking place with the Aristocats. That's the, you scoff all you like. If I showed Gay Paris or fucking the Aristocat, thank you. One person remembers Gay Paris. Judy Garland made a cartoon in the 60s. Yeah, you fucking heard me. In between the second all shower and the fucking two and all bath, <laughs> Judy Garland made a movie with Robert Goulet and Red Buttons where they play cats in France, and it's the cutest fucking movie in the world. And I don't care if you don't know that I sit at home with curlers in my hair and watch that fucking movie, eating chocolate cake frosting from a moist and ready jar. It doesn't matter to me if you judge, because what I do is unassailable. If I showed Gay Parade, people would lose their shit. First of all, we'd have to find a fucking print of it, which I think is going to be well nigh impossible, unless we go to the Red Buttons Museum, which is located in Crescenta, California. I don't even know if there is a Crescenta. In, in this town, you just make up names like La Placentia or whatever. El Barbacoa. That's a town, right? Is that outside of Claremont? You ever notice that? People on the news, on the weather or whatever, the traffic and shit, they'll go, well, the traffic's pretty tied up around Ansandorindo. Where the cock is that? Who fucking lives out there? Is that near the desert or Ontario or some bullshit? What's Brea anyway? Why? Tustin and Whittier, for real? Fuck you, Whittier. Gross. Your laugh has been dominating all night. In the middle of the movie, when you laughed at something errantly, it made the movie better for all of us. I think we've had enough. We'll be back next month, probably the 28th or 29th, and it's going to be uh, the Gay Paris, I'm guessing, or uh, maybe The Happiest Millionaire with uh, Tommy Steele. <laughs> I've made myself hysterical. One last thing. Darby O'Gill and the Little People was one of Sean Connery's first pictures. Cubby Broccoli went to see it. Why Cubby Broccoli went to see Darby O'Gill and the Little People is a mystery. However, he thought that Sean Connery was so hot in it, he made his wife, Dana Broccoli, go and see it, and she got hotted up, and they cast him as James Bond. And yes, they invented Broccoli. I'm not kidding. This has been the Greg Proof Film Club. Thank you very much for coming out. You've been the Greg Proof Film Clubbers. This has been... The man who it became, I can't understand. Thank you very much. We'll see you in a month's time. Peace.